Father, thanks so much for Jim. I thank you for uh, his heart and for his spirit, his presence, the person that you've made him. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for telling your gospel through Jim's life. I thank you that you are, uh, that you're in him. So Lord, would you use your uh, servant Jim to speak to all of us this morning? Open our hearts, Lord, to what, um, what you have to say. So bless Jim, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That's pretty good. Uh, well, what I want to share with you is the three biggest course corrections in my life. See, uh, Peter has to come up with something new every week, and I come up here once a year or whatever it is, and I get to do the good stuff, you know. <laughs> you know, pick, up, pick out the highlights. So, uh, you know, a navigator is so important to a pilot in a, on a ship or in an airplane. And, you ch and, and the pilot always checks with the navigator if they're on course. So these are the three biggest course corrections in my life, okay? And they apply to all of us. So the first one is with. And everybody said, huh? <laughs> uh, I ran into with in John 17, 24. Jesus prayed about all of us. Father, I desire that those whom you've given me be, what? With me. Um where I am. And, and to have his kids with him is the reason that he went through all of that suffering. So we could be with him. Now the question is not, is he with us? Because he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So he's with you right now. The question is, are we with him? So, one day, I'm sitting on the couch run, uh, watching the Bronco game, and, you know, amateurs should not try this at home, because you can get in a lot of trouble, men. I asked my wife, what does it mean to be with you? Ooh. <laughs> uh, and she, she said, well, it certainly doesn't mean that you're sitting next to me. I said, what? All the men said, huh? I am with you. You're, you're here, and I'm here, and I'm with you. No, she said, that's not being with me. And I said, well, what, what's being with you then? And she said, well, it means you're giving me your undivided attention. When you're watching the Bronco game, you are not with me. And all the women said, yeah. <laughs> all the men said, huh? <laughs> so, um, for most of my Christian life up to this point, I don't know, what, 20 years, uh, I, I had to do things for him. You know, it was kind of like my dad, uh, he would go off, he was, a, he was an eye surgeon, and he would give my orders in the, in the morning, 
and then come back at night and give me my grade. You know, mow the grass. We had this huge yard in Kansas City. Oh. And sometimes the lawnmower would be stuck on the hill out there with the, with the yard half done. And we would have a discussion. And I transferred to that, that to my life w- with the Lord. And I said, okay, I have a quiet time in the morning, and I find out what my orders are, and then I go out and try real hard to do it for him. And of course, you can't do it for him. You have to do it with him. If I, uh, if I tell one of our daughters, Melody, I say, Melody, you want to do the dishes for us? What do you think I get out of that? Not much. But if, I, if Dad is in the kitchen and Dad is doing the dishes, and I say, you want to do it with me? She'll come running in. And the dishes are not the issue. Right? The issue is being with her dad. I was in Leavenworth, Kansas years ago, speaking to the War College, and I was talking about being with him, and these two Top Gun pilots came up, and they were a little agitated, and they said, how can we be with him? The next 20 years of our lives are planned out. And I said, well, what do you think being with him looks like? And they described going to a park with a journal and a Bible and sitting there for two hours. And they don't have two hours to sit there. I said, wait a minute, that's not, that's not being with him. Can you see Jesus coming to you and saying in the morning, I'm going flying today, you want to go with me? So can you see Jesus, you've got that schedule in front of you, And he says, I'm going to the store today. You want to go with me? Uh, One day I watched the Bronco game with him. I said, gee. Uh, I said, Lord, uh, how do you see this NFL anyway? And I was looking at the screen and in the spirit, he took off their helmets. So what did that say to you? If he, if he takes off the helmets, he's not concerned about the uniforms. He's concerned about the person. And we were, happened to be pr- playing the Raiders, and I thought that was... <laughs> you can't love those demons. <laughs> but he does. <clears throat> Even the Oakland Raiders, he loves them. Well, Rainy, come on up here. Uh, she's got a, a story we like. Uh, that kind of illustrates the with him thing. Uh, yeah, see, I can't bend over there. Thank you. He can. He just says he can. This is, this is my wife, Reenie. You can call her Maureen because she really likes her name. But I started calling her Reenie and I never stopped. And we've been together for 53 years. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is the secret? Oh, th- we won't go there. Okay. <laughs> Jim wants me to read this story, and some probably heard this. Uh, 
Um, I don't know, can you hear me? There we go. Um, it's called The Small Wooden People. And uh, it's the story of the Wemmicks. The Wemmicks were small wooden people. Each of the wooden people was carved by a woodcarver named Eli. His workshop sat on a hill overlooking their village. Every Wemmick was different. Some had big noses, others had large eyes. Some were tall and others were short. Some wore hats, others wore quotes. But all were made by the same carver and all lived in the village. And all day, every day, the Wemmicks did the same thing. They gave each other stickers. Each Wemmick had a box of golden star stickers and a box of gray dot stickers. Up and down the streets, all over the city, people could be seen sticking stars and dots on one another. The pretty ones, the ones with smooth wood and fine paint, always got stars. But if the wood was rough or the paint chipped, the Wemmicks gave dots. The talented ones got stars too. Some could lift big sticks high above their heads or jump over tall boxes. But still others knew big words and could sing very pretty songs. Every time they got a star, it made them feel so good that they did something else and got another star. Others, though, could do little. They got dots. Punchinello was one of these. He tried to jump high like the others, but he always fell. And when he fell, others would gather around and give him dots. He would try to explain why he fell and say something silly, and the Wemmicks would give him more dots. After a while, he had so many dots that he didn't want to go outside. He was afraid he would do something dumb, such as forget his hat or step in the water, and then people would give him another dot. In fact, he had so many dots that some people would come up and give him one without reason. He deserves lots of dots, the wooden people would agree with one another. He's not a good wooden person. After a while, Punchinello believed them. I'm not a good Wemmick, he would say. The few times he went outside, he hung around with other Wemmicks who had lots of dots. He felt better around them. One day, he met a Wemmick who was unlike any he had ever met. She had no dots or stars. She was just wooden. Her name was Luya. It wasn't that people didn't try to give her stickers. It's just that the stickers didn't stick. Some admired Luya for having no dots, so they would run up and give her a star, but it would fall off. Some would look down on her for having no stars, so they would give her a dot, but it wouldn't stick either. That's the way I want to be, thought Punchinello. I don't want anyone's marks. So he asked the stickerless Wemmick how she did it. It's easy, replied Luya. Every day, I go to see Eli. Eli? Yes, Eli, the woodcarver. I sit in the workshop with him. Why? Why don't you find out for yourself? Go up the hill. He's there. And with that, the little Wemmick, with no marks, turned and skipped away. But he won't want to see me. 
Punchinella cried out, but Luya didn't hear. So Punchinella went home. He sat near the window and watched the wooden people as they scurried around, giving each other stars and dots. It's not right, he muttered to himself, and he resolved to go see Eli. He walked up the narrow path to the top of the hill and stepped into the big shop. His wooden eyes widened at everything. The stool was as tall as he was. He had to stretch on his tiptoes to see the top of the workbench. A hammer was as long as his arm. Punchinello swallowed hard. I'm not staying here. And he turned to leave. Then he heard his name, Punchinello. The voice was deep and strong. Punchinello stopped. Punchinello, how good to see you. Come in and let me have a look at you. Punchinello turned slowly and looked at the large bearded craftsman. You know my name? Of course I do. I made you. Eli stooped down and picked him up and set him on the bench. Hmm, he spoke thoughtfully as he inspected the gray circles. Looks like you've been given some bad marks. I, I, did, I didn't mean to, Eli. I really tried hard. Oh, you don't have to defend yourself to me. I don't care what the other Wemmicks think. You don't? No, and you shouldn't either. Who are they to give stars and dots? They're Wemmicks, just like you. What they think doesn't matter. Punchinello, all that matters is what I think of you, and I think you are pretty special. Me? Special? Why? I, I can't walk fast. I can't jump. My paint is peeling. Why do I matter to you? Eli looked at Punchinello, put his hands on those small wooden shoulders, and spoke very slowly. Because you're mine. That's why you matter to me. Punchinello had never had anyone look at him like this, much less his maker. He didn't know what to say. Every day I've been hoping you'd come, Eli explained. I came because I met someone who had no marks. I know. She told me about you. Why don't the stickers stay on her? Because she has decided that what I think is more important than what they think. The stickers only stick if you let them. What? The stickers only stick if they matter to you. The more you trust my love, the less you care about the stickers. I I'm not sure I understand. You will, but it will take time. You've got a lot of marks. For now, just come to see me every day and let me remind you how much I care. Eli lifted Punchinello off the bench and set him on the ground. Remember, Eli said as the Wemmick walked out the door, you are special because I made you, and I don't make mistakes. Punchinello didn't stop, but in his heart he thought, I think he really means it. And when he did, a dot fell to the ground. That really always touches me. Every time you're with the Lord, a dot falls to the ground. We all come in here with stuff, but with Him, and we'll celebrate communion in a few minutes, 
dots are falling to the ground. And we can stop putting stars and dots on each other. That would be really nice. The second, the second big course correction of my life is it is finished. Now, being here, you probably already know all this because Peter's told you about this. And as a matter of fact, I've been all over town trying to go somewhere where they, where they might receive me uh, with this belief, but this is the only place I can be. <laughs> so uh, I was with uh, Daryl Scott, who lost his uh, uh, daughter in the Columbine shooting. Uh, Rachel, and he started this thing called Rachel's Challenge. Uh, they've spoken, I think the latest figures are 13 million kids in direct uh, assemblies all over the country and the world, really, trying to create a chain reaction of kindness. And Daryl and I reconnected after Columbine and I walked up to him in a restaurant and he said, the first things out of his mouth was, you might not want to get tangled up with me. I said, why? He said, well, I got a lot of heresies in me. <laughs> I said, well, give me the worst one. And that's where we ended up with, it is finished. You know, and so I saw let's see, 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Sometimes you pass over a, a verse, I mean, yeah, this is at football games, John three sixteen. God so loved, what? The world. I used to read that, God so loved believers but it's the world. Anyway, I wasn't caught between the cruel God of Calvin and the weak God of Arminius anymore, and people around me were my brothers and sisters forever. And you go into a restaurant and you look around and you say, these people are gifts from God, all of them, even the ones that are hard to get along with. Because they, they teach you how to love your enemies. <laughs> you need enemies if you're going to learn how to love them. And witnessing now is not telling people to get something they don't have, but telling people uh, what they already have. When I was in Campus Crusade, we did a lot of witnessing. And it just, I hated those days. We'd go to the beach with a clipboard and religious analysis survey and, and we'd walk up to these poor people that were sunbathing on the beach and you know after we did this for a few weeks they saw us coming you know if they, if they saw a clipboard in our hand <laughs> they'd run one guy ran I was with this really heavy, heavy hitter entrepreneur uh, charger and this guy was running from us and jumped over the fence. And he yelled out, he says, you can't run from God forever. And I said, oh man, you know. And I hated these, these uh, 
report sessions. You know, this guy led three to the Lord and this guy. And I just hated witnessing. So I would go into the men's restroom and look and see if there were any uh, feet underneath the uh, stall there. And I would throw four law booklets underneath the, <laughs> in there. <laughs> and, and then I go back to the reporting session and say, well, I witnessed the four guys today. <laughs> I'm not sure whether they met the Lord or not, but, you know, that's the Lord's business, not mine. <laughs> so witnessing now is a lot easier because I can tell people what they already have. Huh? They're already forgiven, all bit, already wa- raised with Him, already in union with Him, already heirs with Him, already existing with Him. Okay, i got to hustle here. Number three. Our old man is dead. I, I was doing an outreach with an old crusade guy, and I'd left all that, and we were witnessing in Jamaica. And, <laughs> and I was being an absolute creep for two weeks. I just hated this whole thing, you know. Oh, man, do we have to go out again? And those uh, the guys who were driving on those roads, I mean, they, they were so close. We knocked off a rearview mirror one time, and I just put a towel over my head, and I just didn't want to see when we were in the bus. So, the last day, we had three days we were just going to relax. And I went to this favorite area, and the Jamaican cook was uh, listening to a soap opera. And I was so mad, I went down beside the pool. Well, the wife of this guy that I'd been complaining about was down there reading a book very intently, and that always gets my attention. And I said, hey, Nancy, what are you reading? And she said, well, it's about death to self and life in him. I said, Romans 6? She said, yeah, Romans 6. I said, I hate Romans 6. <laughs> I can't stand that chapter. How do you, how do you cease from sin? Or, or how, how are you dead to sin and still sinning? You know? So she said, Jim, um, you don't need to die to yourself. You're already dead. (laughs) And uh, I thought, okay. So I went off into a corner and I said, okay, Lord, I hate Romans 6. And this is the last time. I'm going to read it one more time. And if you don't show me something, I'm never reading this chapter again. One through five. 7 through 16. 16. So you have to ask the theologian. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah. How many ever chapters there are in Romans? Anyway, so I get to verse 6, and it says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. And it's like this this light comes on inside. It's not up here, it's here. And my old man was dead. It was over. It was just 
over. It didn't matter whether the greatest teachers in the Christian circles came and told me you're interpreting that wrong. It didn't matter. My old man was dead. So, who are we really? Who are we? Uh, we've, got, we've got body, we've got soul, and we've got spirit. And through the body come all these signals to the soul uh, through our senses. And the world, the flesh, and the devil are out there, and they're, they're coming that way. And we form this imposter self. Oh, I was good at that, man. I could, I could be anything our group was. You know, with Campus Crusade, a great witnesser, you know. Uh, <laughs> then the navigators came along and I started memorizing scripture, you know, and I was, I was in. I just changed with every group. But I was, uh, I'm going to skip to something here. Uh, who are we really? And, and, and we sang it in a, in a song. What, what did we sing? Bless the Lord. What? Oh, my soul. So David did this a lot. He was, who we really are is the spirit over here that observes what our soul is doing and thinking. So David speaks to his soul all the time. He says, why, oh my soul, why are you so dis disquieted within me? And we sing, bless the Lord, oh, oh my soul. We're, we're letting the Holy Spirit speak to our soul. And all this stuff that comes in from the other side and forms this, this fake man that we are, uh, I, you know, Peter was praying about the politics. The whole world is speaking to each other as imposters. If we ever got to the point where we began to speak to other, each other spirit to spirit, the world would become unified. And I think that's what the body of Christ will look like. Well, let me show you how this works. Um, I was getting really angry at everything. I, uh, some people said, well, you're just getting old. You're just getting old and grumpy. And you can't get up the stairs either. And uh, uh, three guys in different ways, said, ask the Lord, what is the lie behind your anger? Indicating that there is a lie behind every sin that we commit. Who's the father of lies? Satan. So I, I was kind of skeptical. I was walking to the gym. Yes, I did go to the gym. Thank you very much. <laughs> and uh, I said, okay, Lord, what's the lie behind my anger? And I didn't get anything for three days. And then I got back from the gym. I actually did work out. 
And I got back from the gym and I got my coffee and I got my toast and jam on a plate. And I was walking into my office and I tipped the plate and the toast and jam fell off, jam side down. And my language was not exactly Christian. I exploded. And then I looked around to make sure that the windows were closed. Because <laughs> my neighbors might have heard me. And you know, when they find out you're a former pastor, uh, they think you're the holy man on the block. And I was not that. And if they heard me that day, they would know for sure that I wasn't. So it slid off, and somewhere in there, I said, you idiot. And all of a sudden, the lie. Up until 68 years of age, I had believed in my heart, not my head, that I was an idiot. My mom made us feel that way. Uh, during high school, they said, you need remedial reading classes. And my sisters were getting straight A's. And my B's, C's, and D's looked like total failure. And I, I, I thought I was an idiot. Well, uh, one day, Somebody gave me a book called Annapurna. You ever, ever, anybody heard of Annapurna? No. Annapurna <laughs> is like, what is it, the sixth highest mountain in the world? But it's extremely hard to climb. And Annapurna was the story of Maurice Herzog, who was a Frenchman, who climbed that mountain, took off his gloves to take a picture, and his gloves rolled down the side of the mountain. He lost all his fingers and some of his toes, and he was hauled down the mountain. And the story was fascinating, fascinating. All of a sudden, I was a good reader because it all depends on interest. We have a grandson, they think, well, he's not a very good reader. But you give him a NASCAR magazine, and he'll tell you, tell you everything about Jeff Gordon, thank you. <laughs> and everything about Jeff Gordon, because he's interested. In Rachel's Challenge, we used to study the old um, master teachers. And at the center of their teaching, was interest. Kindergarten was supposed to be that you would observe the kid for two or three years and see what their interest was, what their, uh, what their leaning was. And then you could uh, give them a, a course, a curriculum that fit that. Well, so here I am with Annapurna and all of a sudden I'm a good reader. Well, I'll tell you a little secret. There are principles that the Lord put together that will back you up in your dreams and you don't even know how it happened. If you conform to them, they'll back you up. If you go against them, you'll destroy yourself. So here I am, uh, two years later, this was in college, 
I went up to Estes Park to work at the Y Camp up there. If you've never been there, take your family there. It's a great place for your family. And they made me the hike master. I'm climbing 14,000-foot mountains in Estes Park and leading these climbs, and I'd, I don't even know how it happened. It was like I found out this mountain climbing thing was in me, and then all these principles of the world backed me up, and it just happened. So don't, even if you're 68 years old or 78 like I am now, uh, don't give up your dreams. In 1991, I resigned the church. Mainly because I was trying to fix, uh, I, I was tired of fixing people. Or, I should say, trying to fix people. And they didn't want to get fixed. And the church was paying me to fix people. So I quit. I haven't had, well, I had one short job, but didn't pay anything. Uh, I haven't had a salary or a job since 1991. And God has provided because I just followed my dreams. So, your old man is dead. Do I have time to read that last story? Barely. Okay, it's not quite as long as the Wemmick story. This is Baxter Black. Anybody know Baxter Black? Cowboy poet. I love that guy. And here's what he wrote. You ever been embarrassed by your good dog? <laughs> I got a good dog, an Australian shepherd with one blue eye, and I believe he loves me. I believe I love him. He'll go anywhere with me. <laughs> When, I'm laughing because I know what's coming. Uh, when I say you want to go, he don't ask where you're going. You going to the video store? This was written quite a quite a few years ago. <laughs> video store. He don't care. He just wants to go. And did you ever notice that you don't matter? That it doesn't matter whether you've been gone five minutes or five days. Your dog's always glad to see you. Can you think of a single human that's glad to see you? You're fixing to leave, walk out to the pickup truck and forget something. So you run back inside and your dog licks your hand and your spouse says, I thought you left. <laughs> I got a neighbor, a good neighbor, and when you live on the outskirts, a good neighbor is someone who lives just the right distance away. Close enough to circle the wagons, but far enough away to allow the privacy people like us seems to value. I believe these are Kansas plates, mother, he said, sighting through the binoculars. Anyway, he gets home, or she gets home about a quarter after five every day, and she goes through her house and comes out the back wearing her coveralls, and in her backyard, she has a long line of rabbit hutches, and she spends what is, in, to me, an inordinate amount of time messing with them rabbits, singing little rabbit songs. Now, I'm sitting on my back porch one afternoon. It's about 2.30. I'm done working. I've already thought up something. I look out in the driveway, and there's my good dog, and he's got a rabbit. And you know how you can tell it ain't a jackrabbit? 
They aren't black and white, and they don't have them floppy ears. And he's got this rabbit between his teeth, and he's thrashing him like a shark with a ham hock. There's dirt and leaves and brush flying all over, and I jump up and grab that rabbit and, and yell at the dog, get in the pickup, you blankety-blank dog. That rabbit looked bad. Looked like he'd caught on fire, and somebody put him out with a weed eater. Well, I, I ran into the house and ran a tub full of warm water and tested it with my elbow. Then I got some of my wife's good shampoo. She gets it a holiday in it, ain't no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> and I subsed him up twice and then moosed him with my daughter's moose. She made, it made him sticky. You could thwack him on the tile and peel him off <laughs> like Velcro. <laughs> then I ran upstairs to the laundry and put him in the dryer. When he came out, he was fluffy, looked like an electrocuted porcupine. <laughs> I carried him to my neighbor's house, and sure enough, the last hutch on the end was cocked open, and it was empty. And I took that rabbit and folded him into a little rabbit position and put a smile on his lips and gave him a camel filter and leaned him up against the wire. I went back to the house and commenced to rock it. About a quarter after five, I saw my neighbor drive up, and she got out, went through the house, and came to the back wearing her coveys. She started down that long line of rabbit hutches, talking to him, singing little rabbit songs. Here comes Peter Cottontail hopping down the bunny trail. All of a sudden, I heard her scream. I ran over there, being the good neighbor I was. <laughs> What's wrong? <laughs> My rabbit, she cried. I looked at the cage, and the poor little duffer fell over, and the ear was broke off, and it didn't look good. I stroked him gently and said, ma'am, I think he's dead. <laughs> I was a veterinarian, I could tell. <laughs> yes, she said, but what bothers me is I buried him three days ago. <laughs> God buried your old man 2,000 years ago on the cross. So don't keep digging him up. He's dead. He's like a dead man yelling. All he's got left are lies and emotions. So listen to your new man, the gift of the Holy Spirit. What a gift. The Spirit of truth. He will guide you into all truth. Well, so here we have communion. Now, when I was growing up in the Episcopal Church, we had, we had 10 years perfect attendance. Hold, hold down the applause, please. <laughs> and we had communion every week. And it got to be a ritual. In fact, I became an acolyte. Uh, and we had this little game we would play. The acolytes got together. We were supposed to estimate the crowd. So the priest would know how many wafers and how much wine to put in there. 
And if we overestimated the crowd, we could get him pretty drunk after three services. <laughs> so that, that was my... That was what I was thinking about during communion. But, but I've been... I've been taught that we are under the blood of Christ, which is great, and when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. But I'm down underneath this thing. It's great that he can't see my sin, but I'm down here struggling with all these sins. And then I realize there's a second lamb. You know the second lamb? There was the lamb who shed his blood, and then there's the scapegoat. And they would put the, uh, the sins on the scapegoat, and he would wander off into the woods. And the verse was, I have removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. And I thought, it's gone. They're gone. I don't need to resurrect the rabbit. They're gone. So when you take communion this morning, I want you to think of two lambs, the one who shed his blood and covered our sins, but also the one who took them far away, as far as the east is from the west. Okay? So here we are. Now I've watched Peter do this, so I hope I do it right. On the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. And then after the supper, he took the cup Thank you. This is juice in the white. And the wine is in the brown. And he said, drink ye all of this. It is the blood of the new covenant shed for you and for many. And so, if you want to stay here and keep worshiping a while, we invite you to do that. If you'd like prayer, members of the prayer team will be down front here. They'd love to uh, just pray with you. But uh, no matter what, remember the three course corrections. I, I need to remember these every morning, Jim. Like the moment I wake, I wake up. Um, that, that, that number one, not for him with him. And number two, it is finished, which is really great news for a nervous Nelly like me, then I don't, I don't have anything to worry about. And then number three, my old man is dead. I don't, I don't have to fluff him up. I don't have to put him in the dryer. I don't have to clean him up. <laughs> I don't even have to kill him.
which is really good news because he's already dead. I just need to see that he's dead. Yeah, that's, that's, that's good news. So anyway, thank you, uh, Jim, for that uh, wonderful good news called the gospel. And uh, listen, if you'd uh, like to be, Jim's going to be doing that dis, uh, discussion time after the service for uh, as long as people want to come do it, I guess, or until we all die, right? So um, if you would, if you, Francis is going to be downstairs so if, uh, with, with her clipboard for the class on Wednesday night. If you would sign up for that, that's great. Also, if you sign on the, if you sign up, Francis has to sign up too for discussion afterwards. That at least gives Jim some idea about uh, who might be there. So um, each week we'll end with more time for worship in here and also prayer. And if you'd like to go down and discuss the message or pretty much anything about your faith, right? Because they can ask you pretty much anything, right, Jim? And you have the answers. That's pretty great. So, uh, oh, oh, God has the answers. There's something anyway. But, yeah, you'll fix me. I, I need it. I'll pay you. Yeah. So, uh, believe, next week is how to, yeah, okay. All right. Uh, believe the gospel. Amen.